Hey, before we begin, a quick reminder that today's episode is made possible in part by the Todd and Stephanie Schnick Foundation. Find us at schnickfoundation.org. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Let's go, y'all. You are listening to The Foundation Podcast. Our goals are to help you build the foundation to live your best life, help solve problems, better serve humanity, and to become a beacon to help inspire change. We connect you with today's leaders, affecting positive and impactful global change. And now, here are your hosts, Todd and Stephanie Schnick. Good morning and welcome back to the Foundation Podcast. I am your host, Todd Schnick. Gosh, I've been a fan of today's guest for a long, long time. Uh, She's a world champion and someone I have long admired and rooted for many times over the years. And it's so exciting to uh, welcome her. You probably are familiar with the gold medal she might have won. You're probably familiar with some of her world championships. Heck, you might even remember her from Dancing with the Stars. But what you should remember about her is uh, the work of her foundation. And that's what uh, we're principally here today to talk about. Um, so looking forward to the conversation. Let's welcome Christy Yamaguchi. Christy, welcome to the show. Hi, Todd. Thank you for having me on. Uh, the pleasure is ours. I am, again, so grateful for your time. I know you're awfully busy, so uh, wonderfully appreciative of you carving out a few minutes for us today. Gosh, so uh, as I mentioned a second ago, our audience is obviously familiar with you. You really don't need an introduction. Uh, but for those listening who are certainly familiar with your various world championships and gold medals, update them on what Christy Yamaguchi has been doing since then. Well, keeping busy, I, I after the Olympics, I actually toured for 10 years professionally on a skating tour called Stars on Ice. And uh, it was a lot of fun. I learned a lot about being a professional, you know, making that transition from a competitive skater to a professional and, and focus more on the entertainment side. And kind of in the midst of that, I started the Always Dream Foundation and turned my sights on philanthropy and really wanting to make a difference out there, particularly in the lives of underserved children. Outstanding. Well, as I said, we are so grateful for your efforts there. We'll get into that in a second. Why did you do a foundation? You were universally admired and beloved around around the world. Uh, Why did you need to go down that path? What was the motivation for you to do something beyond what you were obviously already well known for? Well, I think it was I mean, a lot to do with my family and my family had always been very community minded. My, both my parents volunteered a lot when we were growing up, either at church or at school and the hospital, wherever. And I think they were always just so grateful for the support that I received coming up through the ranks as a competitor and from the community. And after the Olympics, my mom asked me, Hey, well, you've been so lucky and you've had a lot of support. What are you going to do to give back? And, you know, as a 20-year-old, you're like, oh, you, I can do that? <laughs> right. And I joined a tour called Stars on Ice. And the beneficiary of that tour was the Make-A-Wish Foundation. And it was really my first hands-on experience with direct beneficiaries and the families. And it just, it touched my heart so much. And I think we saw the impact, or I saw the impact that can be made when you do stretch out a helping hand or just give a child a day to remember and and to forget some of the challenges they're facing. So that really inspired me to do something for kids and 
to make a positive difference in their life somehow. Outstanding. So the Always Dream Foundation. So let's, so let's kick off our discussion around that. What is the overall mission and purpose of your work there? So we've evolved. I'm, um, believe it or not, we're in our 24th year wow, um, of old. existence. Yeah, yeah. I started when I was three. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we've had 24 years of constant giving. And since 2010, 2011, we've really focused on early childhood literacy. So our mission is to ensure that families from low-income areas have access to high-quality books. They have family engagement support at home. And with this, we feel like we can really help the families create that foundation of learning at home, which will help their child in the success in school and in life. So access, you know, is the number one thing when you're looking at low-income families. Over 60% of them have no age-appropriate books in the home for their children, which, you know, as a mom, I think that's what struck me so much. My kids loved reading time. They couldn't wait until after bath and pulling out all those books and sitting down with them to read. And it was a special time. And I think my husband and I really saw the impact, the positive impact that reading time and that reading routine had on them as they grew and went into school. So we really wanted to give other children out there the, the same opportunity. Uh, and that's amazing. And here's, here's what is important to understand about this is, is it sounds like you had that as a child growing up. and. I realized later in my life that I took that for granted for my childhood. I had access to any book I wanted. I had parents that were invested in my education and cared and read to me. I just thought that's what children do. That's what parents do. And, and uh, what I would love for you to do is, is kind of talk more about the problem that we're dealing with here. I mean, that's not the case. And there are significant statistics about the, the staggering percentage of our children who do not have that do not have access to books, let alone age-appropriate books. It's a staggering worldwide problem, and it speaks to so many issues that, that plague us. And I'm not even talking about what's going on currently with the pandemic, and we can touch on that in a second. I'm not so sure that a significant percentage of our global problems stem from illiteracy. So talk more about the depth of the real problem here and why the work that you're doing, amongst other organizations that are also doing important work, why this is so necessary and so desperately needed? No, it is. I mean, I think when you see in the U.S. alone, when, you know, close to one out of four are not graduating high school, reading at grade level, and knowing that if you perpetuate that, it's just perpetuating poverty, loss of income, and some areas even calculate their incarceration rates based off of the fourth, third grade reading level of their area. So, you know, if, if there's a direct line, when you can't read, you're not going to learn the other subjects that you also need to learn as a student coming up in the world. So in order to get that love of reading, that love of books, you need to have access to them and you need that support at home from family members, siblings, aunts, uncles, grandma, whoever, to really help shape that literacy foundation and that reading routine. So yeah, I, I mean, you can go on and on with about the statistics. And I think that's what was so shocking to me and knowing that this is a fixable problem, right? It's not something that's insurmountable. I think we're a very small organization at Always Dream, but we feel like we play a very important and essential role 
in that early literacy development stage and to provide that access. So we do it digitally. We embrace 21st century technology. And that, you know, back in 2012, people thought we were crazy to be handing a child a tablet. They're like, well, no, there's no studies on that, on how it's going to affect it. It's like, well, not yet. But the digital age is here. It's here to stay. And as a small organization, this is a, you know, embracing the technology also help scale too and to reach more students. If we could put a thousand books into the hands of a child on a tablet, it's just having that choice of subjects and titles is going to get them much more interested than just handing them maybe free hardcover books. So we've kind of evolved and grown and being small, it it helped make us nimble because the technology world changes so quickly. But obviously now in in this COVID era and the distance learning that everyone is adjusting to, our program has really gone on without a hitch because it is really truly designed for the home environment and to help support the parents. And that may be, if there's any positives that come out of this pandemic, it's that, is that we're going to quickly advance our thinking and understanding and appreciation for what technology can do in terms of solving this problem. But when I think about literacy, and I mentioned to you that our foundation focuses on several issues of literacy, one of those, I thought it was just reading comprehension or lack thereof. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, we could talk about crime, how the crime rate would be so much lower if reading, if literacy rates were much, much higher. Economic opportunity gets lost. And then you, you layer on top of that what's happening with COVID and, and the severe economic depression that we're going through right now is exacerbated by the fact that a lot of the people directly impacted by that have reading problems. And that, that complicates that process of helping them dig out under that. You know, but then you shift it to a different kind of literacy. And this is what has been so fascinating for us in terms of learning is, is food literacy and, and art literacy and, and appreciation for those kinds of things. And, and the foundation of that, though, is the literacy we all are familiar with and the ability to read and write and, and do arithmetic. I mean, it's foundational to a happy, successful life where you can be creative and innovative, right? Yes. And that's why I think we're so passionate about trying to close, you know, really level the playing field for everyone out there and to help close the digital divide because we know that not everyone has easy access to the internet or Wi-Fi. And, you know, with our program, we do need connection because we need to download the books and that's how the children access all of those titles. So we also help provide that digital access. And then also, obviously, the achievement gap is just not having the same resources that everyone else does. So trying to level the playing field is really, you know, it's a lofty game, but there, like you said, a lot of players in the field and we're all approaching it a different way, but that's what it's going to take in order to really, you know, lift everyone up to, to get to where we want to be. Yes. So speak now about the actual specifics of your program and how it actually works. So we target, we have a very targeted service group and that is low-income kindergarten students and their families. So we really work closely with the school districts and principals and teachers to reach our target audience through the schools. We have an opt-in, I guess, opt-in to be a part of the program, which we, you know, the teachers are always encouraging 100% participation from their classes. And then they receive a digital tablet with access to thousands of books through an app. And the tablet's locked down. So when the child receives it, to them, it's not 
uh, game playing, you know, recreational thing. It's, it's really for learning. And some of our families have really loved that because they said, oh, my child realized that, oh, this is a learning device. And they love to grab their tablet with the blue bumper on it and read their books. And they know it's reading time when it comes out. And we have a book coach who looks after the families and not only does the training with them on how to access the books, take care of the tablet, all of that, but she's monitoring the usage. There we have access to the back end and permission from the families to look at how many books they're reading, how many minutes have been read, even how many pages have been turned. And this helps us, you know, gauge the success of the program. And when we see families falling behind, we do have a protocol for the book coach to go through to reach out to the family. You know, maybe it's a text, maybe a second and a third text. Usually by the third one, there is a response. And it could be as simple as, oh, we've been on vacation or sometimes the device wasn't plugged in, so we need help charging it. So it, you know, it's that outreach and that personal connection that the book coach can have with the families to try to get them back on track. And at the end of the year, we uh, are together with the families again, typically, you know, obviously not right now with this remote learning, but, and we'll do a celebration with the kids, you know, we'll have book readings and then they all receive certificates of completion of the program. And then they continue to have access to the book platform for the rest of the summer. And we really try to encourage them to continue with their summer reading as they go into first grade. And they don't, as of now, we're still small. They don't keep the tablets, but you know, if their parent has a smartphone or a computer at home, they are able to log on through hmm. the summer. I love this notion of the book coach. Uh, someone, I don't want to necessarily say hold you accountable, but is a support mechanism to kind of help guide the family through this process. Uh, I mean, it's one thing to ship a tablet to someone and hope that they take advantage of it, mm-hmm. but having that book coach has got to be really impactful for these families, right? It is. It's, I mean, it's a lot of data for them to be collecting and looking at every week, but you know, that really helps us, you know, understand, you know, maybe what types of books they're liking. We do curate um, a live that the platform they access is it's called Epic and they can access thousands of books, but we do curate a specific library of suggested readings that, you know, kind of fit into the rubric that we consider a high quality book and kind of follows the curriculum that we push along with, you know, the duration of the program. And one other thing, the parents also get text messaging from us three times a week. So it's every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and it's everything from a reading strategy, maybe on Monday, and then on Wednesday, it's typically, oh, there's five new books in your library. Please check them out. Maybe pick one, a new one out tonight to read to your child. And then, you know, Friday is uh, kind of more strategy tips that they can use with their child and also activities leading into the weekend. So, you know, all of these gentle nudges and reminders, you know, up through surveys that we've had through evaluations with their families, they've really liked it because even though sometimes it's things they know, when you see it and it prompts you, then it, it you know, it's top of mind. And, and we send it out like right at 3.30. <laughs> so when kids are getting home from school and they're like, oh, okay, you know, here's that reminder. Let's, let's sit down and read a book. I imagine, because I didn't fully appreciate this uh, until I got into 
studying and understanding this whole issue of literacy myself. But I imagine what you've also found, and I think you actually talked about this as, as one of the key benefits of the program is, yeah, this is amazing and life-changing for the child, him or herself. Mm-hmm. But this is so critically important for the family too, right? And in terms of increasing family engagement and together time, and mm-hmm. this has got to be impactful and helpful to, because we're talking about low in, low-income families here for the most part. Mm-hmm. Who are, it's a challenge to get through life on a day-to-day basis. I mean, this has got to be impactful for the whole family unit, right? It is. And I think, you know, there's one story that I always love because it does show how it, it affects the whole family. And um, it's just a, you know, anecdote from one of the parents. It was a mom. And she had mentioned before doing this program, my husband was not involved at all with our children's learning at home. And, you know, she comes from a Latinx family and she says it's very typical that the dad, you know, everyone's busy, you know, everyone has multiple things they're trying to juggle. But she says with this program, her daughter went around to everyone in the family, asking them to read to her on the tablet and particularly always went to her dad. And he loved spending that time sitting down and reading and looking at the books with her. And she said it's made a huge difference to engage, help get him engaged, not only with the daughter, but with the rest of the the family um, in their home learning. So, you know, so that was one. And another one was that, you know, the the daughter was saying, oh, my mom wasn't really comfortable reading to me. But because on this digital platform, there is a read to me function, the mom sat down and spent that time looking at the books with her daughter and actually improved her English language skills as well. And, you know, I mean, obviously that's not our goal or in our mission, but it's a huge ripple effect that is, is there with the family. So, you know, we love hearing those stories because it just makes it, okay, we're doing something out there. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's, and that, that's what makes it so magical and, and so rewarding. And it answers the earlier question of why do you do this? Because those kinds of things happen as a result and, and that changes lives and that's exciting. You know, I, we worked on a program out of our foundation um, because that focused also on low-income families. But these were families that either didn't have two parents at home, or if they did, they were probably working two jobs to put mm-hmm. a table and a roof over their heads and just couldn't spend the time. And so the program that we were working with was, was recruiting retired senior citizens and put, placing them in schools and in homes as, as a mentor and a, and a, and a tutor. And I mean, this I mean, that's so critical when you think of this on the old problem of illiteracy is, is that, you know, yeah, family matters. I mean, there's a, we can cite thousands of statistics that say reading to your kids at night will do more to advance their success and happiness in life than virtually anything else that you can do. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people that just don't have access to that. And so this program uh, and others nicely supplements that and makes it easier. And, it, and so it's just all good stuff. I mean, there's a lot of work to do, but we're making good progress. Do you feel that? we're making progress on this front? I feel like we are, definitely. And, you know, I think the more the word gets out there on what people are doing, the, the better for everyone. And, you know, thank you for your podcast, because I think it's a huge vehicle for all kinds of nonprofits on getting the word out of the need out there, first of all, and then what people are doing to help it. And that's just going to galvanize other people around to join in and it's a tough nut to crack, but I think we can engage people, uh, the better off everyone will be. Well, your program has to be impactful in changing all these families' lives, but I have to imagine even more so now that we're in the throes of this pandemic. 
Can you speak to the impacts it's having and the benefits of it now as we're going? Because low-income families are already at a disadvantage, and then you throw on this pandemic and all the economic and, and scholastic limitations, it's, it's adding to the burden. Uh, this has got to be really, really beneficial to families at this time and place. It is. And again, because of the design of it, that we really target that home environment. We actually, the first two months of the pandemic in March and April, because that's when California went into lockdown, we saw about an average of 15 to 20% increase use amongst our families with the program. And that's literally when the school shut down. So the kids are home and the parents are like, you know, what do I do with you? But going into this new school year, we're literally just launching the, the 10 new schools or 10 schools in the fall, uh, September. And we're hoping that we'll see, you know, similar success. And I think families and school districts, everyone, teachers are just doing an amazing job and having to pivot so dramatically. But, you know, hopefully they will see that our program uh, can be beneficial to them and will help really you know, we really want to kind of be that bridge from the classroom to home. And a lot of schools don't have the resources to do that. You know, they're focused on that school day. And once, you know, three o'clock hits, it's really hard to find a way to reach those families at home. And we are a vehicle for these our schools to do mm, that. No doubt about it. So as we wrap our discussion around the foundation, how do you get involved? Now, you are currently focused on just three states, California, Arizona, and Hawaii, if I'm, if I'm correct. But how does it, so someone listening or becomes familiar with the program, how do you get involved? Well, you can always look at our website, alwaysdream.org, and more detailed information on, you know, what we are, who we are, what we do. You know, you can keep apprised on social media, either the Always Dream channels or my personal ones, because we're always doing fun things out in the community. We actually do have our annual gala coming up, which has been switched to a virtual one, like everyone else, coming up in October. So we'll have some fun entertainment, obviously a live auction and uh, fun to need, but just a way to stay connected with um, our stakeholders out there and other people who might be interested in early literacy. Outstanding. All right. Well, where do you guys go from here? What's next from the foundation? What can we look forward to to seeing come next? Well, we're really excited because we are in the program that I described to you. It's kind of our 2.0 version, as we call it. And we are launching it. We launched it in five schools last year. And this coming school year, we've doubled that and we're in 10 schools. So we're in a really critical area of growth right now. So we're really excited about looking forward to, you know, expanding, reaching more students and getting out into new school districts in those three areas, Arizona, California, Hawaii, and then in a few years beyond, like see where it goes anywhere, hopefully. Yeah. No, it's, and as we alluded to earlier, it's such a, a critical need. I have, I have uh, high expectations that uh, your foundation will continue to expand and and reach and benefit more and more people. If you want to help the foundation, if you want to support it in some way, how do how does one do that? Like always dream in particular, or just any founder? Yeah, no, always dream. Oh, make uh, political con- or can can make contributions? Can they support? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're always looking for support out there, and we can't do it alone, right? It's it's something that it's. it's part of our community. And we've had some incredibly generous people out there, but 
you know, every little bit counts. And as we know, um, you know, with things like podcasts and social media, you can reach a, a broader audience than, than ever before. So it's just telling the story, you know, if you're interested or like what you've heard, you know, spread the word on what we do. That helps uh, gain interest. And again, alwaysdream.org uh, is our website. And there's always, you know, the donate button follows you everywhere you go on the website. <laughs> I'm familiar with that donate button. Yeah. And let me just say uh, that on behalf of my wife and I, Stephanie, uh, we will be honored to award you guys a grant from our foundation and oh. an appreciation of of what you're doing and, and uh, excited to, in a small way, uh, partner with you long term and uh, as we both and uh, both of our organizations strive to make some impact here on these children and their families, as we alluded to. So, oh, uh, wow. Thank you so much. Wow. Thank That's you so for nice. your leadership on this, on this critical issue. All right. Well, let's shift now uh, for a few minutes. I would be remiss not to take advantage of having a world champion on the show and gleaning some lessons and some advice and counsel from someone as uh, successful as you are. Again, I uh, mentioned at the top of the show, a uh, 92 gold medalist winner in Albertville, uh, two world championships, if I'm correct. We're going through tough times right now. This pandemic is obviously causing a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety. It's being hard on a lot of families. We touched on that a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. The economic struggles that we're going through and the economy affected by this pandemic, and not to mention you know, all the social justice stuff happening right now. I mean, it's heavy weight on a lot of us, mm-hmm. and these are things that we're going through, but it's tough times, and there's a lot of people struggling. Any advice from someone who's achieved the kinds of things that you have achieved, are there any lessons that you could impart in terms of those listening who are maybe going through some struggles and just need some motivation, some inspiration and how they can begin to take it? And there's still opportunities as we go through this to positively affect their lives and their community. Yeah, a lot of heavy stuff going on right now. And I think it definitely is weighing down on a lot of people and affecting everyone in a different ways. I mean, even watching my kids struggling with the online classes every day, sitting in one stagnant place, your heart goes out to them. But I have to feel lucky that, oh, hey, they're still able to go to school and still have some way to learn something. But it's hard. I think it's trying to think, okay, things really can hopefully only get better from here. It's finding a way to get through it and Take care of yourself, I think, is one big thing. I mean, as an athlete, you're only focused on yourself. You know, it's a very self-centered life. You're living, you're training, you're eating, you're, everything is focused on those goals. And a lot of times athletes have a hard transition after because all of a sudden they're in the real world and it's a totally different life. But you still need to take that time, I think, you know, right now we're worried about trying to do too much because so much needs to be done, Mm -hmm. but it's really finding that time to take care of yourself, whatever it is you find joy, like give yourself 10 minutes a day and that can help ground you, help resend you so you can kind of tackle the challenges that you'll be facing. But just have faith that let's get through this. We can stick together, lean on people, Lean on your family, your friends, your neighbors, and hopefully at the end of this, there will be better days ahead. I have to assume that to have achieved what you achieved, certainly on the ice, you needed to have the ability to control your mindset and you needed to leverage and take advantage of 
strict discipline. And these are things, they're not easy, but these are things that everyone can do, right? We can choose our mindset. We can set a vision for ourselves and then discipline ourselves to work towards those goals. These are things we can all do, even if you're not privileged, even if you're lost your job, even if you are hungry, these are still things that you can leverage to begin to turn things around and take advantage of the opportunities that we're now seeing as a result of of all this struggle. Yeah? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's obviously so tough when you feel like you're in a hole that you just can't get out of. But mindset has so much to do with where you're going. Like, If you're only thinking you're stuck and you can't go anywhere, then you'll probably stay there, right? But if you're really looking for other ways, like you said, setting goals, no matter how small it is, it's giving you something to focus on and to work towards and move up to. And it could be as small as, you know, today I'm going to get out of bed and get dressed because I need to do something productive. And it's just those baby steps that will eventually move you forward. And it might be slowly right now, but it's something. Yeah. And then it goes from there to winning a gold medal, perhaps, you know, so, uh, (laughs) all right. So here's the million dollar question that I've been wondering since uh, first realized that you and I were going to get a chance to chat. What was the more competitive championship to win? Was it Olympic gold or dancing with the stars? (laughs) Yeah, good one. I actually get that one a lot because dancing with stars is just, is so fresh in people's minds. And that gets pretty competitive, which I wasn't super prepared for. I mean, I was a huge fan of the show before, and I just wasn't sure if I wanted to go on it and expose myself and, you know, just be judged again. But it ended up being really fun. And obviously, the Olympic pursuit was 14 years in the making. It was a huge sacrifices from my family and support from everyone from coaches to the community and U.S. figure skating. So a lot, lot went into the Olympic experience. But Dancing with the Stars, you know, it's its own little animal. And for 10 weeks, it's really intense. And I was so lucky to have dance partner Mark Ballas. You know, we had a blast. There's a lot of mutual respect and we had fun. And I was just in awe of his talent. And I think becoming the student again was very natural for me to learn from this professional. But it was exhausting. I had a four and two-year-old at the time. Mm. And when the youngest was born, I thought, I don't think I can be any more exhausted than this. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sleeping for almost two years. But then doing Dancing with Stars was probably up there as far as exhaustion because you're working seven days a week and it's live television and pressure, but it's a lot of fun too. Well, live pressure or live television and pressure and all that. If I had been a star and I was cast in that season and all of a sudden I heard that Christy Yamaguchi was also, I would have said, that's not fair. That's <laughs> not fair. She has, she's born for this. So you mentioned it a second ago, I want to close on this, the 14 year Olympic pursuit. And I remember reading a story about Chris Everett, the tennis champion. And she said once, uh, you know, it was great to win Wimbledon. And I felt euphoric for a couple hours. And then I went back to the grind to do the work to win it again. Mm-hmm. And I have to assume that you went through a similar journey and that yeah, getting up on that platform and, and getting that medal placed on you had to be an amazing experience. But I'm wondering if today, as you sit here today and you're working on the foundation and you're raising your children and you're involved, that 
probably look back upon that journey of getting to that platform as almost as amazing as the victory itself. Is that how you feel about it? Yeah, definitely. Because I think, yes, a lot of opportunity and things have come from that Olympic moment. But like you said, there's so many life lessons learned just to get there. And with any person pursuing a long-term goal or dream, you're focused on it, you're going to have challenges, you're going to have to find ways to dig deep and get over those obstacles. You're going to have successes and failures. But I think you need to have those failures in order to realize when you do have success, right? So all of those life lessons, I mean, you know, the one thing my coach said to her students all the time growing up was, don't be afraid to work hard. There's no secret to success. It's like, if you don't put the work in, then forget it. Why are you here? You might as well go home. (laughs) So, you know, it was like, okay, makes sense. And I think that work ethic just translates to everything in life. Amen. Amen to that. Well, Christy, it has been an absolute joy, not only to have you on today's show, but to have watched you over all these years and the grace that you exhibited in uh, your championships was always so admirable to watch and observe and a good lesson for all of us. And so grateful for being able to partake in your life story and your journey. And then most importantly, on behalf of all of us, really grateful for your work with this foundation. I have imagined uh, on your deathbed, you'll probably more, be more fond of the work of this foundation than you will that gold medal. And that speaks to the lives that you will change and your benefit. And so grateful to everything that you're doing in terms of that important work. Wow, thank you very much. And I appreciate this time that we were able to chat and get to know a little bit more about you and your wife and your foundation and the work too. So, you know, thank you for what you're doing. Yeah, thank you. And one last time, where can they learn more about the foundation? Alwaysdream.org is our website. So definitely check it out and see what the latest happenings are. Outstanding. Christy Yamaguchi, the founder of Always Dream Foundation. Great to have you. Thanks so much for doing this uh, and appreciate your leadership. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. So thank you. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for today. On behalf of our guest, Christy Yamaguchi, I am Todd Schnick. We'll look forward to seeing you again very soon on The Foundation Podcast. The Foundation Podcast is produced by Intrepid Media and is made possible in part by the Todd and Stephanie Schnick Foundation. Learn more by visiting schnickfoundation.org. And thank you for listening. Now, get out there and do some good. And we'll see you next time.